the book of 2 Timothy. I want to focus this morning on one verse in chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2.2. The Spirit reminded me of this verse this week as I was seeking Him and asking Him about the message for today. And um, I originally thought about this verse in reference to the men, but then I realized as I studied it was, it was for all of us. It's been uh, a month since I've been in this pulpit, and that month has been the most busy, uh, the most bittersweet, the most surreal, and uh, probably the most significant month of my life. Started with uh, mid-May, the kids having exams, and then we went to Charlotte, Julie and I, to see my father before he passed away. Then we came back for Jacob's graduation. Then we went back the next day, or the next week for my dad's uh, memorial service and a family reunion. Then we came back the next day for the closing on the church. The next day after that, we had a graduation party for Jacob. And then we moved right in last week to cleaning up the building and preparing for VBS. It has been a, a month of real transition. And... Um, I praise the Lord for it. I, I've just gotten a, a very heavy dose of fresh understanding about life and death and about change and about the passing of time and how things um, move and, and really about the importance of our legacy, what we do with our lives, who we impact, how we impact them, the power and influence of, of really living for Christ. And on this first Father's Day without my dad, I'm, I'm more aware than ever of his teaching and his um, influence and how he, he impacted me, how his prayers and his counsel really were not only an expression of the love of a father, but were very much of an investment into my life. And once he knew my calling to ministry, which happened in 1984, when I was a sophomore in college, I, I look back and I see now an even greater intentionality about how he responded to that, giving me books, sending me notes, uh, praying for me, talking me through passages, encouraging me on a, on a Saturday night. Even in the times where it was challenging, even when it was difficult, even when I'm like, I'm, I'm done with this, I don't want to do this anymore. So I'm telling you that because he was not only my father and not only my pastor, but but he was a mentor spiritually to me. And ultimately, that's the purpose of ministry. And as we're going to see in the text this morning, it is not exclusive to pastors. In fact, the Spirit of God tells us in 2 Timothy 2.2 that it is the responsibility and it is the privilege of every single believer. So let's see what Paul tells Timothy. We'll get a little bit of background and then we're going to dive right in the text. 2 Timothy 2. We'll read verse 1 just to lead us into verse 2. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, you're probably familiar with Timothy's situation, but if you're not, let's just recap it for a little bit. Timothy was considered a young pastor, but he was actually about in his mid-40s when Paul wrote this to him. And he had been taught and trained and mentored by Paul. 
Timothy had a definitive calling to ministry. You can see that back in chapter 1 and verse 6. And he was known of Paul's team, Barnabas, Epaphras, uh, Timothy, Silas. He was known as an evangelist. So he had trained in Paul. He had traveled with Paul throughout Asia Minor, telling people the gospel, telling people about Jesus. And then at the conclusion of those journeys, Paul placed Timothy as the pastor in the church in Ephesus. So by the time 2 Timothy is written, because there's about a four-year gap between 1 and 2 Timothy, by the time 2 Timothy is written, Paul, excuse me, Timothy has been the pastor in Ephesus for about four years. Now you remember from our Seven Churches series that Ephesus was a very cosmopolitan city, very influential and important city in the region, and it had a very large library. It was very well-known, intelligent. People there were astute. It had a huge temple to the goddess Diana. And there were sorcerers and magicians in Ephesus, and they were very protected by the city because the worship of Diana was not only something that was part of their religious culture, but it was a moneymaker. People came from all around the world to see the, God, uh, the temple to the goddess Diana. So, so Ephesus really was careful to protect everything related to idol worship. So when Paul comes into town and he starts teaching the gospel, there was opposition and there was resentment, and they rejected his teaching. Now, despite that, God's uh, greater than the devil, right? So God saved people. There was a strong group of committed Christians in Ephesus. The church developed. Paul sends Timothy there, and he says, you need to, to oversee this church. The problem is the church in Ephesus was attacked by false teachers, and there was a great infiltration by the enemy who was trying to get in and corrupt the theology of the church and, and uh, dissuade people from following the Lord. And that created such tension and such angst for Timothy that by the time we get to the book of 2 Timothy, four years into his ministry, because the third or fourth ministry year of ministry is always the hardest. So fourth year of ministry, Timothy is writing Paul between 1 and 2 Timothy and saying, I'm done. I'm done. I'm out. Enough already. Can't handle it anymore. The people are yelling at me. There's opposition. There's false teaching. People are falling away. The church is declining. I'm struggling. I hate my job. I hate ministry. I mean, we don't know this, but you can read it into the text. I'm done. Paul, get me out of here. I am, I am finished. I am over. I don't want to be here anymore. Now, every pastor has been there. I don't care how big or small your church is. Every pastor has been there. And many faithful Christians have been overwhelmed by warfare and personal opposition and relational trauma. Some of you know this feeling because the enemy comes in and he enjoys trying to exploit our emotions and our tiredness. So just when we get to the point of doing well and just when we hit points of, of victory, the devil lobs a discouragement grenade at us. And we get hit, and we say, wait a second, what's going on? Things were just going well. Why is this happening? And we have to guard against this, because those attacks uh, are, are, are designed to discourage and dissuade us, and we can't allow that to happen. So this is where Timothy is. And he's scared, and he's self-focused, and he's fallen prey to the attack, and as understandable as it might have been, his weakness and his vulnerability are taking place because he's looking at himself and not at the Lord. And that created feelings 
and problems that really wouldn't have been there if he had really stayed centered on trusting the Lord and serving the Lord. So there are a couple things that are happening here. Let me just list these real quick so we get the context. The first thing we know, as I've said, is Timothy wanted to quit the ministry. He wanted to abandon his calling, which was certainly not a result of deeply trusting the Lord. Then he says, I'm, I'm disheartened, I'm despondent, I'm discouraged, which is never a result of being renewed in our minds and taking our thoughts captive and thinking only about what's good. He's overwhelmed by criticism. He's defeated by opposition of other people, which can be difficult, but it's not the reaction of somebody who gives Christ the preeminence in all things. And then he's, he's losing his spiritual influence. He's, he's not studying as much. He's not praying as much. He's not talking to people as much about the Lord. That doesn't happen when you're feasting on the Lord and, and trusting in the Holy Spirit and praying. And then he's, he's just relying on his own strength. That's why he says, I can't do it anymore, because he's only using his own strength. And Paul has to remind him, if you know, back in chapter 1, look, you need to refresh your faith. You need to rekindle that fire in you, and you need to be reminded of your calling. See, Timothy was not walking with spiritual strength. And when we're not walking with spiritual strength, it means we're not walking closely with the Lord. Because strength always comes from the Lord. When you are walking by faith and not by sight, you will have God's strength. When you are putting off sin and putting on holiness, you will have God's strength. When you are faithfully fulfilling your calling as a believer, you will have God's strength. When you are bold and disciplined and you're ministering to people out of the spiritual overflow of your life, God will give you more and more and more strength. So look at what he tells him in verse 1. He says, Timothy, you need to be strong in what? Tell me. The grace that is in who? Tell me. Christ Jesus. You're writing to me, Timothy, and you're saying you're weak, you're beaten down, you're done, you want to quit, people are overwhelming you, the work's too hard, and, and, and you're finished. Well, first of all, remember your calling, remember that God loves you, remember that God has uniquely equipped you, and now, Timothy, you need to get strong, not by trying harder, you need to get strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Strength always comes from God's grace, and God's grace is always expressed through Jesus. So when we're close to Jesus and we're in love with Jesus and we're living for Jesus, it is undeniable that we will be strong. And we need to understand a very important truth here, and I want you to get this this morning. God's grace is not a I'll just get through it grace. God's grace is a strength for any battle grace. How many know that's true? God doesn't just give grace so you can just get through this. God's not going to give grace to Stacy so she can just survive this. He's going to give strength for her for every battle, for the attacks on her mind, for the attacks on her body, for the attacks on her emotions. God is all-powerful, and he loves and he protects his children, and he gives us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, and he equips us with the full armor for warfare, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and his word. But here's the key. We have to take the posture of a soldier. Look at verse 3, because that's what he says. 
we have to take the posture of a soldier equipped with the full armor fighting the good fight. The other option is that we stand there with partial equipment, half-hearted in our engagement, wondering what to do next. And by doing that, we will always find ourselves deficient of power. Not because God doesn't supply it, but because we've stripped ourselves of His power through selfishness and sin. So God says, I'll give you full armor. I'll give you everything you need. I can get you through this. If you're discouraged this morning, you're defeated, you're disheartened, I've got all the power that you need, all the equipment that you need. And if we just take a couple things, well, I'll read my Bible five minutes this week, but come on, God, give me some power. No, that's not how it works. I've given you what you need, but you've got to stand as a soldier now. You've got to equip yourself with what I've given you, and you've got to engage, because whether you like it or not, you're in the battle. So you can be defeated in the battle, you can be wounded and, and constantly limping around, or you can take those grenades, you can pick them up, you can throw them back at the devil. Because I've given you what you need. Listen, the measure of God's power in and through you is determined by how fully you're living for God's grace. There is a direct correlation there between verse 1 and verse 2 that cannot be circumvented. So Paul says in verse 1, look at it again. Timothy, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. The tense of the verb there indicates that this is an ongoing command. Constantly continue to persevere. We have a responsibility, you and me, to stir ourselves up to do the work. Which is why being fed by the Word, spending time in God's presence, persevering in prayer, being built up by the body, that's, that's all key. That's spiritual bodybuilding. That's, that's exercising our faith so we're strong and we're encouraged and, and our strength increases so we're ready for the battle that's going on. Not only because the warfare is so pervasive, but because we tend to become weak. We've got to be refilled by the Spirit of God every single day. Every single hour, Lord, fill me again. If I'm going to be filled, I've got to be emptied of self. And Lord, refresh me with all the resources that you have given to me. So when the opposition comes and the trials come, my faith is stronger, my commitment's stronger, my prayer life is stronger, my witness is stronger, and my love for you is stronger. Strength that is born out of strength, but not our strength. Look back at it. It's strength that comes from God's grace. Now you say, all right, that's a good little pep talk. That's an encouragement. Now what? Well, it doesn't stop there because the strength is not just for us. There's a reason for it. And the reason for it is explained in verse 2. I need to be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because now I have a responsibility the, the, the statement of encouragement is in verse 1. The responsibility is in verse 2. The responsibility the Lord gives us is that you and I are supposed to be making spiritual deposits in the lives of other people. Look at it. Read it again. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Here's the, here's the job. Okay, everybody, believer, here's the job. Entrust those things that you've heard to faithful men who will be able to teach others 
also. Now, there are so many spiritual principles here that we could study this for three hours, but let's quickly lay them out. Notice, first of all, how Paul emphasizes to Timothy at the start of the verse that he's heard and received the truth of God's word, which is what he learned about Jesus Christ and about God's grace. Paul taught it to him. It was a firm look at it in the presence of many witnesses. So it's not just one man's opinion because that was some of the accusation in Ephesus that this is just Paul's opinion and the false teachers twisted it. But Paul says, no, the word is our powerful resource to assure us that God's power is dwelling in us. Listen, when you feel weak, you feel dry, you just need a drink of refreshing, cool spiritual water, run back to the word. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. And it all comes from the truth in here. Timothy needed a time of spiritual refreshing because Paul's saying, look, Timothy, you're not walking away. You need to buckle down. And to do that, you're going to have to be ready, which means you're going to have to be spiritually refreshed because you have a calling to fulfill. And it is critically important. Here's what it is. Look at it. He says, you are called and I am called. And we are called to entrust the truth to others. Only the Word of God. God doesn't need you to explain astrophysics to other believers. He doesn't need you to explain how a a diesel engine works. You know what He needs you to explain and me to explain? The Word of God. Paul says to Timothy, you heard the word from me. You understood it. Others have affirmed it. Now, Timothy, your job is to tell other people. And here's the advantage. Timothy didn't have a leather Bible in his hands. We do. And we're called, you and me, this is not a suggestion, we are called to entrust that truth to others. Now, that word entrust, if you write your Bible, circle it, or if you're taking notes, write it in capital letters. That's a very interesting word, and it's a word I've understood a lot better in the last two weeks. In Greek, that word entrust also means to deposit the truth. The secondary meaning is actually to serve food, which makes sense in biblical context because what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to take in the milk and the meat of the word and to taste and see that the Lord is good. God, everything works together with God. So he says, you're supposed to deposit this. Now, let me give you a practical example. When we went to the title company a couple weeks ago, we had to write a very large six-figure check, still sends chills on my back, a six-figure check for the down payment on this building. And it was a painfully large amount of money, but it was wonderful for two reasons. One is that we had the money in the bank and more. Praise the Lord for his provision. Praise the Lord that somebody sent us a $15,000 check this week. See, when you deposit into the Lord, the Lord deposits back to you. So we wrote this check. And I remember when I went to the bank to get the cashier's check, she looked at the account, the manager, and she's like, here comes this squirrely little pastor. Like, yeah, you're going to write this. She goes, wow, you have that money in your account. I'm like, well, of course. I didn't come in expecting to say, could I have all this money, but we don't have it. But can you give it to us? Yeah, take it out of the account. There's still excess because God's good. So that was the first wonderful thing. 
The second wonderful thing was putting that deposit down meant we own the building. And praise the Lord for that. But here's the reason we had to do that. The lender needed proof that we were serious. The lender needed proof that our stated intention, listen now, this is so wonderful, our stated intention to live a certain way as property owners, that that was sincere and that was long-lasting. So we had to provide them with four years of financial records and four years of bank statements so they could see if they could entrust us with what's valuable, which is their money. Because the bank's not going to say, sure, we'll give you a $400,000 loan. You don't have it, and you're never going to have it. But, but we love to just give money away, right? They're not going to do that. Cough over the bank records, Pastor. Let's see how you guys have been doing. Let's see how your giving's been. Let's see how you've spent money. Oh, they did it with a smile on their face. But they wanted to know that they could trust us. Now look at verse 2. The Spirit is teaching us that one of the primary ways that we prove we're serious about our faith and serious about our calling as His disciples is to make spiritual deposits by trusting, entrusting the Word to other people. The power of God's grace is that He has given us what we need, but it's not for our use were to deliver it to other people so they will be spiritually strengthened. But there are specific people that we are especially to focus on. And those people, as Paul says, are those who are spiritually faithful. Now don't get caught up by the word men here because that was my initial thought in this text for Father's Day. The word actually means men and women. So what's the Lord saying? The Lord is saying we need to entrust the deposit of the word to people, all people, who have spiritual integrity, who have proven themselves faithful and reliable to love the Lord. These are people, according to the secondary meaning of the word, who, who love the word, who are easily persuaded by God's truth, who love the promises of God. They regularly take it in to their heart. Now you say, well, that sounds a little exclusive. That sounds like we only are to teach people uh, who are mature Christians. Nope, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that every person needs to hear the gospel. Every person needs to understand the Bible. And we can't back down from speaking the truth in love and sharing our faith. But we are not to be careless with the word. And a significant amount of our time needs to be spent in trusting this precious book, this book of precious truth to people who are faithful and who value it for all it is. And then as we do that, then they will pass on what they have learned from us to other faithful people who have pure hearts who are going to continue to do the faithful work of ministry. One of the ways we know that we are receptive to God's word and that those we are entrusting with it are receptive to God's word, is that it's proven by lifestyle. If the word is regularly being received, listen, it will penetrate our hearts, and then it'll come out of our mouths. And it'll be shown in our actions, and it will be taught to others. And it won't just be words, it will be the integrity of our lives.
See, Paul, Timothy knew very well that anybody can speak about the Bible. Anybody can speak and say, this is God's word. There were deceivers and false teachers in Ephesus who were twisting the word and, and acting like they believed the truth, but they didn't. So how do we discern who's speaking the truth and who's not? Well, it has to be modeled through a consistent spiritual character. It has to be modeled by serving the Lord faithfully. It has to be modeled by giving sacrificially. It has to be modeled by loving Christ with all our hearts. It has to be modeled by sacrificing in our marriages. It has to be modeled by raising our children to know and love the Lord. Jesus said to us, if you're faithful in the little things, I will grant you authority over much. So while it may not seem very significant to to discipline yourself not to laugh at the dirty joke at work and not to participate in the lifestyle of the co-workers who are dishonoring the Lord. And it may not seem very significant to sacrifice for your wife and do the dishes for her and take her on a date and minister to her and, and bathe the children when she's worn out. And it may not seem sacrificial to, to speak words of affirmation to your husband and to encourage him and to pray for him. It may not seem very significant to go through the day-to-day -day of just spending time with your kids and, and feeding them and praying with them, but the Lord sees all those little acts of faithfulness and he rewards them. You're faithful to me in the little things? Oh, you have no idea how I'm going to bless you in the big things. You just serve. You just keep going. You just stay faithful. You do the work of a soldier day after day. And it doesn't seem exciting some days. And you're getting hit by grenades other days. And you want to just say, it's not worth it. But I'm telling you, if you're faithful a little, I'll bless you in much. I was reminded of this principle this week when our kids were at Worldview Academy, which is such a wonderful program. I hope every teenager in this church will go through it. It's a week of spiritual training which teaches kids to develop and live by a deep biblical worldview. And I'll tell you more about it in the days to come. But, but in the sessions, Julie and I sat and we sat in a couple sessions. The speaker used an example that I've used in other churches, but I don't think I've ever used it here. It's a comparison of two men who lived in the 1700s. They lived in the same area in New York, they lived to about the same age. They each had the same number of kids, eight or nine kids. One was a man named Max Jukes. Max Jukes was an alcoholic who didn't want to work, didn't want to be educated. He married a woman just like him. And Max Jukes racked up a long line of criminal offenses. The other man who was his peer was a man named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was one of the greatest minds in Christianity. He Entered Yale at 13, slacker. Graduated with honors. Became a pastor. Eventually preached a very famous sermon called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. He also helped start the Great Awakening, which was a revival that spread throughout the United States in the late 1700s. Researchers have tracked the generational families of the two men. Max Jukes, Jonathan Edwards, lived at the same time, same area, same situation, same number of kids. And they came up with this observation. Jacob, could you put that up for me? Jonathan Edwards, from him and his generations, 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 75 military officers, 
80 public servants, 60 authors, 60 doctors, 30 judges, 100 pastors, 100 lawyers, three United States senators, and a vice president. From Max Jukes, 310 died as paupers, 150 criminals, seven murderers, 100 plus drunks, and 190 prostitutes. The cost of Max Jukes' family generation was about $1.25 million to the state of New York. The cost of Jonathan Edwards' life was zero. See, how we live, the decisions we make, the impact and influence of spiritual faithfulness is unmistakable. And dads, I hope we're seeing this because how we lead, how we influence, how we train our kids in the way that they should go, and I'm just saying that to dads because it's Father's Day, that has an impact. The Spirit of God tells us in 2 Timothy 2.2 that the Word, His Word, this valuable Word that we hold in our hands, it needs to be entrusted to faithful people. So let me conclude by asking two questions this morning that the Lord put very strongly on my heart, and they're for me, and they're for you. Here are the two questions. They're very simple. First of all, write these down. Are you faithful to the Lord? Are you faithful to the Lord? Are you someone the Lord knows He can rely on? Are you someone who proves himself or herself consistent and loyal and unwaveringly committed to Him every day? Or after years of, quote, being a Christian and going to church and whatever, is it still the same inconsistency, still the same struggles with sin, still the same uncertain faith, still the same restless heart? What is it? Are you faithful? When the Lord looks at you, does He say, oh, that Paul Rhodes, he's faithful. Or does He say, I keep waiting. I keep waiting for that guy to get his act together. I've poured out my grace on him. I've given him my spirit. He has my word. He has a calling. But, but I keep waiting. Question one, are you faithful? And maybe the second question describes a little bit better. Can the Lord trust you? Can the Lord trust you? When he looks at Paul Rhodes, or whatever your name is, is he certain that he can trust you with his own spirit? and with His precious Word, and with His calling to entrust others with the truth. And if you say, I believe He does, Paul, I believe He trusts me, then what evidence are you seeing where you know the Lord is trusting you? Maybe He's given you a hard ministry responsibility. Maybe He's put you in the middle of a painful trial. Maybe there's a family member that you've been praying for for years and He wants you to continue to persevere in prayer for that person and to speak truth in them. Maybe there's a relationship in your life that, that is just testing your patience. But if you persevere, it'll have a spiritual reward. What is it? How confident are you that God trusts you? And what evidence is there? And how are you proving yourself worthy every single day? to be worthy of His trust. See, the Spirit's telling us, look at it one more time, we're going to pray. I've got a word that I want to entrust to faithful people who I know will love me and I know will serve me.
And maybe right now for you, that just means being consistently faithful. Nobody sees it. Nobody pats you on the back. Nobody says thank you. But day after day after day, you're being faithful. Do not discount that. Because when we get to heaven, the greatest reward will not be the crowns. It won't be a parade in our honor. The greatest reward will be the word of the Lord saying, well done, you've been faithful. You've been faithful. I knew, I knew I could rely on you. I knew I could rely on you. I knew you loved me. I knew you served me. I saw it. It was there every day. Well done. And trust what you've learned. Now, the Lord's taught us, right? Entrust what you've learned to faithful men and women. The Lord has deposited his righteousness. The Lord has deposited his nature. The Lord has deposited his spirit and his calling on us. Now, we are to be trustworthy and to encourage others to be trustworthy too.